Chapter Seven, Part Five of Royal Highness by Thomas Mann, translated by A. Cecil Curtis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espayat. Klaus Heinrich felt happy and cheered, whether as the result of the canter for which he had had to brace himself up, for though a decent figure on a horse, his left hand prevented him from being a strong rider, or from some other reason. After leaving the pine wood, they rode along the quiet high road between meadows and furrowed fields, with a peasant's hut or a country inn here and there. As they drew near the next wood, he asked in a low voice, "'Won't you fulfill your promise and tell me about the countess? What is your companion's history?' "'She is my friend,' she answered, "'and in a sense my governess, too, although she did not come to us till I was grown up.' That was three years ago in New York, and the Countess was then in a terrible state. She was on the brink of starvation, said Miss Spoelmann, and as she said it, she fastened her big black eyes with a searching, startled look on Klaus Heinrich. Really starvation? he asked, and returned her look. Do please go on. Yes, I said that too when she came to us and although I, of course, saw quite well that her mind was slightly affected, she made such an impression upon me that I persuaded my father to let her be my companion. "'What took her to America? Is she a countess by birth?' asked Klaus Heinrich. "'Not a countess, but of noble birth, brought up in refined and luxurious surroundings, sheltered and protected, as she expressed it to me, from every wind.' because from childhood she had been impressionable and sensitive. But then she married a Count Leuvenule, a cavalry captain, a strange specimen of the aristocracy, according to her account, not quite up to the mark, to put it mildly. "'What was wrong with him?' asked Klaus Heinrich. "'I can't exactly tell you, Prince. You must take into consideration the rather obscure way in which the Countess puts what she has to say.' but to judge from what she has told me, he must have been just about as errant a scamp as one could well imagine, a regular blackguard. "'I see,' said Klaus Heinrich, "'what's called a hard case or a tough proposition.' "'Exactly. We'll say a man of the world, but in the most comprehensive and unlimited sense, for, to judge by the Countess's remarks, there were no limits in his case.' No, that's what I too gathered, said Klaus Heinrich. I've met several people of that sort, regular devils, so to speak. I heard of one such who used to make love in his motor-car, even when it was going at full speed. Did your friend Überbein tell you of him? No, somebody else. Überbein would not think it proper to mention anything of that sort to me. Then he must be a useless sort of friend, Prince. You'll think better of him when I tell you more about him, Miss Spoelmann. But please go on. Well, I don't know whether Leuvenule behaved like your roué. Anyhow, he behaved disgracefully. I expect he gambled and drank. I guess so. And besides that, of course, he made love, neglected the Countess, and carried on with the loose women that are always to be found everywhere, at first behind her back, and later no longer behind her back, but impudently and openly without any regard for her feelings. 
but tell me why did she ever marry him? She married him against her parents' will, because, as she has told me, she was in love with him. For in the first place, he was a handsome man when she first met him. He fell off in his looks later. In the second place, his reputation as a man of the world had gone before him, and that, according to her, constituted a sort of irresistible attraction for her. For, though she had been so well sheltered and protected, nothing would shake her in her resolve to share her life with him. If one thinks it over, one can quite understand it. Yes, he said, I can quite understand it. She wanted to have her fling, as it were, to get her eyes opened. And she saw the world with a vengeance. You may put it like that if you like, though the expression seems to me rather too flippant to describe her experiences. Her husband ill-treated her. Do you mean that he beat her? Yes, he ill-treated her physically. But now comes something, Prince, which you too will not have heard about before. She gave me to understand that he ill-treated her not only in a temper, not only in anger and rage, but also without being exasperated, simply for his own satisfaction. I mean that his caresses were so revolting as to amount to ill-treatment. Klaus Heinrich was silent. Both looked very grave. At last he asked, Did the Countess have any children? Yes, two. They died quite young, both only a few weeks old, and that's the greatest sorrow the Countess has had to bear. It would seem from her hints that it was the fault of the loose women for whom her husband betrayed her, that the children died directly after birth. Both remained silent, and their eyes clouded over. Add to that, continued Imma Spurlman, that he dissipated his wife's dowry at cards and with women, a respectable dowry it was, too, and after her parents' death her whole fortune also. Relations of hers, too, helped him once, when he was near having to leave the service on account of his debts. But then came a scandal, an altogether revolting one, in which he was involved, and which did for him once and for all. "'What was it?' asked Klaus Heinrich. "'I can't exactly tell you, Prince, but according to what the Countess has let slip about it, it was a scandal of the very grossest description.' We agreed just now that there are generally no limits in that direction. And then he went to America. You're right there, Prince. I can't help admiring your acuteness. Please go on, Miss Spillman. I've never heard anything like the Countess's story. No more had I, so you can imagine what an impression it made on me when she came to us. Well, then, Count Leuvenuel bolted to America with the police at his heels, leaving pretty considerable debts behind, of course, and the Countess went with him. She went with him? Why? Because she still loved him, in spite of everything. She loves him still, and because she was determined to share his life whatever happened. He took her with him, though, because he had a better chance of getting help from her relations as long as she was with him. The relations sent him one further installment of money from home, and then stopped. They finally buttoned up their pockets, and when Count Leuvenuel saw that his wife was no more used to him, he just left her. 
left her in absolute destitution and cleared out. I knew it, said Klaus Heinrich. I expected as much. Just what does happen? But Imma Spohmann went on. So, there she was, destitute and helpless, and since she had never learned to earn her own living, she was left alone to face want and hunger. And you must remember that life in the States is much harder and meaner than here in your country. Also that the Countess has always been a gentle, sensitive creature, and has been cruelly treated for years. In a word, she was no fit subject for the impressions of life to which she was unceasingly exposed. And then the blessing fell to her. What blessing? She told me about that, too. What was the blessing, Miss Spohmann? The blessing consisted in a mental disturbance. At the crisis of her troubles, something in her cracked. That's the expression she used to me, so that she no longer needed to face life and to bring a clear, sober mind to bear upon it, but was permitted, so to speak, to let herself go, to relax the tension of her nerves, and to drivel when she liked. In a word, the blessing was that she went wrong in her head. "'Certainly I was under the impression,' said Klaus Heinrich, "'that the Countess was letting herself go when she drivelled. "'That's how it is, Prince. "'She is quite conscious of drivelling, "'and often laughs as she does so, "'or lets her hearers understand "'that she doesn't mean any harm by it. "'Her strangeness is a beneficent disorder, "'which she can control to a certain extent, "'and which she allows herself to indulge in. "'It is, if you prefer it, a want of... "'Of self-restraint,' said Klaus Heinrich, "'and looked down at his reins. "'Right, of self-restraint,' she repeated and looked at him. "'You don't seem to approve of that want, Prince.' "'I consider as a general rule,' he answered quietly, "'that it is not right to let oneself go "'and to make oneself at home, "'but that self-restraint should always be exercised, "'whatever the circumstances.' "'Your Highness's doctrine,' she answered, "'is a praiseworthy austerity.' Then she pouted, and wagging her dark head in its three-cornered hat, she added in her broken voice, "'I'll tell you something, Highness, and please note it well. If your eminence is not inclined to show a little sympathy and indulgence and mildness, I shall have to decline the pleasure of your distinguished company once and for all.' He dropped his head, and they rode a while in silence. "'Won't you go on and tell me how the Countess came to you?' he asked at last. "'No, I won't,' she said, and looked straight in front of her. But he pressed her so pleadingly that she finished her story and said, "'And although fifty other companions applied, my choice, for the choice rested with me, fell at once on her. I was so much taken with her at my first interview.' She was odd, I could see that, but she was odd only from too rich an experience of misery and wickedness. That was clear in every word she said. And as for me, I had always been a little lonely and cut off, and absolutely without experience, except what I got at my university lectures. "'Of course, you had always been a little lonely and cut off,' repeated Klaus Heinrich, with a ring of joy in his voice." That's what I said. It was a dull, simple life, in some ways, that I led, and still lead, because it has not altered much, and is all much the same. 
there were parties with lions and balls, and often a dash in a closed motor to the opera house, where I sat in one of the little boxes above the stalls, so as to be well observed by everybody, for show, as we say. That was a necessary part of my position. For show? Yes, for show. I mean the duty of showing oneself off, of not raising walls against the public, but letting them come into the garden and walk on the lawn and gaze at the terrace watching us at tea. My father, Mr. Spurman, disliked it intensely, but it was a necessary consequence of our position. What did you usually do besides, Miss Spurman? In the spring we went to our house in the Adirondacks, and in the summer to our house at Newport-on-the-Sea. There were garden parties, of course, and battles of flowers, and lawn-tennis tournaments, and we went for rides, and drove four-in-hand or motored, and the people stood and gaped because I was Samuel Spulman's daughter, and many shouted rude remarks after me. Rude remarks? Yes, and they probably had reason to. At any rate, it was something of a life in the limelight that we led, and one that invited discussion. And between whiles, he said, you played in the breezes, didn't you, or rather in a vacuum where no dust came. That's right. Your Highness is pleased to mock my excess of candor. But in view of all this, you can guess how extraordinarily welcome the Countess was to me when she came to see me in Fifth Avenue. She does not express herself very clearly, but rather in a mysterious sort of way, and the boundary line at which she begins to drivel is not always quite clearly apparent. But that only strikes me as right and instructive, as it gives a good idea of the boundlessness of misery and wickedness in the world. You envy me, the Countess, don't you? Envy? Hmm. You seem to assume, Miss Spurman, that I have never had my eyes opened. Have you? Once or twice, maybe. For instance, things have come to my ears about our lackeys, which you would scarcely dream of. Are your lackeys so bad? Bad? Good for nothing, that's what they are. For one thing, they play into each other's hands, and scheme, and take bribes from the tradesmen. But, Prince, that's comparatively harmless. Yes, it's true. It's nothing to compare with the way the Countess has had her eyes opened. They broke into a trot, and leaving at the signpost the gently rising and falling high road, which they had followed through the pine woods, turned into the sandy shortcut between high blackberry-covered banks which led into the tufted meadowland round the pheasantry. Klaus Heinrich was at home in these parts. He stretched out his arm, the right one, to point out everything to his companions, though there was not much worth seeing. Yonder lay the Schloss, closed and silent, with its shingle-roof and its lightning conductors on the edge of the wood. On one side was the pheasant's enclosure, which gave the place its name, and on the other, Stavenuto's tea-garden, where he had sometimes sat with Raoul Überbein. The spring sun shone mildly over the damp meadowland and shed, a, and shed a soft haze over the distant woods. They reined in their horses in front of the tea-garden, and Imma Spillman took stock of the prosaic country-house which rejoiced in the name of pheasantry. 
"'Your childhood,' she said with a pout, "'does not seem to have been surrounded by much giddy splendor.' "'No,' he laughed. "'There's nothing to see in the Schloss. "'It's the same inside as out. "'No comparison with Delphinenort, even before you restored it.' "'Let's put our horses up,' she said. "'One must put one's horses up on an expedition, mustn't one, Countess? "'Dismount, Prince.' I'm thirsty, and want to see what your friend Stavenuta has got to drink. There stood Herr Stavenuta in green apron and stockings, bowing and pressing his knitted cap to his chest with both hands, while he laughed till his gums showed. "'Royal Highness,' he said with joy in his voice, "'does your Royal Highness mean to honor me once again?' "'And the young lady,' he added, with a tinge of deference in his voice, for he knew Samuel Spülmann's daughter quite well, and there had been in the whole Grand Duchy no more eager reader of the newspaper articles which coupled Prince Klaus Heinrichs and Imma's names together. He helped the Countess to dismount, while Klaus Heinrich, who was the first to the ground, devoted himself to Miss Spülmann, and he called to a lad who, with the Spülmann's groom, took charge of the horses. Then followed the reception and welcome to which Klaus Heinrich was accustomed. He addressed a few formal questions in a reserved tone of voice to Herr Stavenüter, graciously asked how he was and how his business prospered, and received the answers with nods and a show of real interest. Imma Spülmann watched his artificial, cold demeanor with serious, searching eyes, while she swung her riding-whip backwards and forwards. "'May I be so bold as to remind you that I am thirsty?' she said at last sharply and decisively, whereupon they walked into the garden and discussed whether they need go into the coffee-room. Klaus Heinrich urged that it was still so damp under the trees, but Imma insisted on sitting outside, and herself chose one of the long narrow tables with benches on each side, which Herr Stavenüter hastened to cover with a white cloth. "'Lemonade,' he said. "'That's the best for a thirst, and it's sound stuff. No trash, Royal Highness, and you ladies, but natural juice sweetened. There's no better.' Followed the driving in of the glass balls in the necks of the bottles, and, while his distinguished guests tasted the drink, Herr Stavenüter dawdled a little longer at the table, meaning to serve them up a little gossip. He had long been a widower, and his three children, who in days gone by had sung here under the trees the song about common humanity, the while blowing their noses with their fingers, had now left him. The son was a soldier in the capital. One of the daughters had married a neighboring farmer. The other, with a soul for higher things, had gone into service in the capital so Herr Stavenüter was in solitary control in this remote spot, in the threefold capacity of farmer of the Schloss lands, caretaker of the Schloss, and head-keeper of the pheasantry, and was well content with his lot. Soon, if weather permitted, the season for bicyclists and walkers would come round, when the garden was filled on Sundays. Then business hummed. Would not His Highness and the ladies like to take a peep at the pheasantry? Yes, they would later, so Herr Stavenüter withdrew for the present, after placing a saucer of milk for Percival by the table. The collie had been in some muddy water on the way, and looked horrible. His legs were thin with wet, 
and the white parts of his ragged coat covered with dirt. His gaping mouth was black to the throat from nuzzling for field mice, and his dark red tongue hung dripping out of his mouth. He quickly lapped up his milk, and then lay with panting sides by his mistress's feet, flat on his side, his head thrown back in an attitude of repose. Klaus Heinrich declared it to be inexcusable for Imma to expose herself after her ride to the invidious springtime air without any wrap. "'Take my cloak,' he said. "'I really do not want it. I'm quite warm, and my coat is padded on the chest.' She would not hear of it, but he went on asking her so insistently that she consented, and let him lay his grey military coat with a major's shoulder-straps round her shoulders. Then, resting her dark head in its three-cornered hat in the hollow of her hand, she watched him as, with arm outstretched towards the Schloss, he described to her the life he had once led there. There, where the tall window opened on to the ground, had been the mess-room, then the schoolroom, and up above Klaus Heinrich's room, with the plaster torso on the stove. He told her, too, about Professor Kürtchen, and his tactful way of instructing his pupils, about Captain Amelung's widow, and the aristocratic pheasants, who called everything hogwash, and especially about Raoul Überbein, his friend, of whom Emma Spülmann more than once asked him to tell her some more. He told her about the doctor's obscure origin, and about the money his parents paid to be quit of him, about the child in the marsh or bog, and the medal for saving life, about Überbein's plucky and ambitious career, pursued in circumstances calling for resolution and action, which he used to call favorable circumstances, and about his friendship with Dr. Samet, who Emma knew. He described his by no means attractive appearance, and readily owned to the attraction which he had exercised on him from the very beginning. He described his behavior towards himself, Klaus Heinrich, that fatherly and jolly, blustering camaraderie which had distinguished him so sharply from everybody else, and gave Emma to the best of his ability an insight into his tutor's view of life. Finally, he expressed his concern that the doctor seemed not to enjoy any sort of popularity among his fellow-citizens. "'I can quite believe that,' said Emma. He was surprised and asked why. "'Because I'm convinced,' she said, wagging her head, "'that your Überbein, for all his sparkling conversation, "'is an unhappy sort of creature. "'He may swagger about the place, but he lacks reserve, Prince, "'and that means he will come to a bad end.' "'Her words startled Klaus Heinrich, and made him thoughtful. "'Then, turning to the Countess, who awoke with a smile out of a brown study,' He said something complimentary about her writing, for which she thanked him gracefully. He said that anybody could see that she had learnt to write as a child, and she confessed that writing lessons had formed a considerable part of her education. She spoke clearly and cheerfully, but gradually, almost imperceptibly, she began to wander into a strange story about a gallant ride which she had made as a lieutenant in the last manoeuvres and suddenly started talking about the dreadful wife of a sergeant in the grenadiers, who had come into her room the previous night and scratched her breasts all over, meanwhile using language 
which she could not bring herself to repeat. Klaus Heinrich asked quietly whether she had not shut her doors and windows. "'Of course, but anybody could break the glass,' she answered hastily, and turned pale in one cheek and red in the other. Klaus Heinrich nodded acquiescence, and, dropping his eyes, asked her quietly to let him call her Frau Maya now and then, a proposal which she gladly accepted, with a confidential smile and a faraway look which had something strangely attractive about it. They got up to visit the pheasantry, after Klaus Heinrich had taken back his cloak, and as they left the garden, Imma Spillmann said, "'Well done, Prince, you're getting on.' a commendation which made him blush. Indeed, gave him far more pleasure than the most fulsome newspaper report of the valuable effect of his appearance at a ceremony which Councillor Schustermann could ever show him. Herr Stavenüter escorted his guests into the palisaded enclosure in which six or seven families of pheasants led a comfortable, petted life. They watched the greedy, red-eyed, and stiff-tailed birds inspected the hatching-house, and looked on while Herr Stavenüter fed the pheasants under a big solitary fig-tree for their benefit. Klaus Heinrich thanked him warmly for all that he had shown them. Imma Spillmann regarded him the while with her big searching eyes. Then they mounted at the gate of the tea-garden, and rode off homewards with Percival barking and pirouetting under the horses' noses but their ride home was destined to give Klaus Heinrich, in the course of his conversation with Imma Spurmann, yet another significant indication of her real nature and character, a direct revelation of certain sides of her personality which gave him food for much thought. For soon after they had left the bramble-hedged byway and joined the high road, Klaus Heinrich reverted to a subject which had been just touched on at his first visit to Delphinenort during the conversation at tea, and had not ceased to exercise him ever since. "'May I,' he said, "'ask you one question, Miss Spurman. You need not answer it if you don't want to.' "'I'll see about that,' she answered. Four weeks ago,' he began, "'when I first had the pleasure of a talk with your father, Mr. Spurman,' I asked him a question which he answered so curtly and abruptly that I could not help feeling that my question had been indiscreet or a false step. What was it? I asked him whether he had not found it hard to leave America. There you are, Prince. There's another question which is worthy of you, a typical Prince question. If you had had a little more training in the use of your reasoning powers, you would have known without asking that if my father had not been ready and glad to leave America, he most assuredly would not have left it. Very probably you are right. Forgive me, I don't think enough. But if my question was nothing worse than a want of thought, I shall be quite content. Can you assure me that that is the case? No, Prince, I'm afraid I cannot, she said, and looked at him suddenly with her big black eyes. Then what has want of thought to do with it? Do please explain. I ask you in the name of our friendship. Are we friends? I hoped so, he said pleadingly. Well, well, patience. I didn't know it, but I'm quite ready to learn it. But to return to my father, 
He really did lose his temper at your question. He has a quick temper, and has plenty of occasion to practice losing it. The fact is that public opinion and sentiment were not overly friendly to us in America. There's such a lot of scheming over there. I may mention that I am not posted in the details, but there was a strong political movement towards setting the crowd, the common people, you know, against us. The result was legislation and restrictions which made my father's life over there a burden to him. You know, of course, Prince, that it was not he who made us what we are, but my redoubtable grandfather with his Paradise Nugget and Blockhead Farm. My father could not help it. He was born to his destiny, and it was no gratification to him, because he is naturally shy and sensitive, and would much have preferred to have lived for playing the organ and collecting glass. I really believe that the hatred which was the result of the scheming against us so that sometimes the people hurled abuse after me when I motored past them, that the hatred quite probably brought on his stone in the kidneys. It's more than possible. I am cordially attached to your father, said Klaus Heinrich with emphasis. I should have made that, Prince, a condition of our becoming friends. But there was another point which made things worse, and made our position over there still more difficult and that was our origin. Your origin? Yes, Prince. We are no aristocratic pheasants. Unfortunately, we are not descended from Washington or from the Pilgrim Fathers. No, for you are German. Oh, yes, but there's something besides that to get over. Please look at me closely. Does it strike you that there is anything to be proud of in having blue-black wispy hair like mine, that's always falling where it's not wanted. Goodness knows, Miss Spoelmann, you've got glorious hair, said Klaus Heinrich. I know that you are partly of southern extraction, for I've read somewhere that your grandfather married in Bolivia or thereabouts. He did, but that's where the trouble lies, Prince. I'm a quintroon. A what? A quintroon. That goes with the Adirondacks and the refraction, Miss Spoelmann. I don't know what it is. I've already told you that I don't know much. Well, it's a fact. My grandfather, thoughtless as he always was, married a woman of Indian blood down south. Indian blood? Yes, she was of Indian stock at the third remove, a daughter of a white and half-Indian, and so a terceroon, as it is called. She must have been wonderfully beautiful. And she was my grandmother. The grandchildren of a terceroon are called quintroons. That's how things are. Most interesting. But didn't you say that it had affected people's attitude towards you? You don't understand, Prince. I must tell you that Indian blood over there means a heavy blot, such a blot that friendships and affections are transformed into hatred and abuse if proof of half-blood descent comes to light. Of course, things are not so serious with us, for with quadroons, why, of course, the taint is nothing like so great, and a quintroon is to all intents and purposes untainted. But in our case, exposed to gossip as we were, it was naturally different, and several times when the people shouted abuse after us, I heard them say that I was a colored girl. In short, 
my descent was made an excuse for insults and annoyances, and raised a barrier between us and the few who were in the same position of life as ourselves. There was always something which we had to hide or to brazen out. My grandfather had brazened it out. He was that sort of man, and he knew what he was doing. Besides, his blood was pure, and it was only his beautiful wife who had the taint. But my father was her son, and, sensitive and quick-tempered as he is, he has always, ever since he was a boy, resented being stared at, and hated and despised at the same time. Half a world's wonder, and half a monument of iniquity, as he used to say. He was fed up with America. That's the whole history, Prince, said Imma Spohmann. And now you know why my father lost his temper over your pointed question. Klaus Heinrich thanked her for the explanation. Indeed, as he saluted and took leave, it was lunchtime, of the ladies in front of the Delphinenort gate, he repeated his thanks for what he'd been told, and then rode at a foot's pace home, pondering over the events of the morning. He saw Imma Spillmann sitting in a languid pose in her red-gold dress at the table, with a look of a spoilt child on her face, sitting in comfortable assurance, and uttering remarks with a sting in them, such as were good coin in the United States, where clearness, hardness, and a ready wit were essentials of life. And why? Klaus Heinrich could understand now, and never a day passed that he did not try to realize it better. Stared at, hated, and despised at the same time. Half a world's wonder, and half a monument of iniquity. That's what her life had been. And that had instilled the poison into her remarks, that acidity and mocking directness, which looked like offense, but really were defense, and which evoked a look of bewilderment on the faces of those who had never had any occasion for the weapons of wit. She had demanded of him sympathy and tenderness towards the poor countess, when she let herself go. But she herself had a claim to sympathy and tenderness, for she was lonely, and her life, like his, was a hard one. At the same time a memory haunted him, a long-ago painful memory, whose scene was the refreshment-room of the citizen garden, and which ended with a terrene lid. Little sister, he said to himself, as he quickly dismissed the scene from his thoughts. Little sister. But most of all his thoughts were busy with planning how soonest to enjoy Miss Spillman's society again. He enjoyed it soon and often, in all sorts of circumstances. February gave place to threatening March, fickle April, and soft May. And all these months Klaus Heinrich visited Schloss Delphinenort at least once a week, in the morning or in the afternoon, and always in the irresponsible mood in which he had presented himself at the Spillmanns that February morning, as if led by fate without any action of his own will. The proximity of the Schlosses made the visits easy. The short distance through the park from the Hermitage to the Delphinenort was easily crossed on horseback or in a dog-cart without exciting much attention, and when the advancing season brought more people to the neighborhood and made it harder and harder for them to go for rides without attracting public attention, 
the prince had by this time reached a state of mind which can only be described as complete indifference and blind recklessness towards the world, the court, the capital, and the countryside. It was not till later that the public interest began to play a really important and encouraging part in his thoughts and actions. He had not taken leave of the ladies after the first ride without suggesting another expedition, a suggestion to which Imma Spillmann, pouting and wagging her head from side to side, had failed to bring any serious objection. So he came again, and they rode to the royal kennels, on the north side of the town gardens. On the third occasion they chose a third place to ride to, which also they could reach without going near the town. Then, when spring enticed the townspeople into the open air, and the tea-gardens filled up, they preferred an out-of-the-way path, which really was no path, but a richly wooded dyke, which stretched far away to the north along a swift-running stream. The quietest way of reaching it was by riding out at the back of the Hermitage Park and past the river meadows on the edge of the northern town garden up to the royal kennels, then, not crossing the river by the wooden bridge at the weir, but keeping close along this side. The kennels farm was left behind on the right, and the ride went on through the fir plantations. On the left lay spreading meadows, white and gaily colored, with hemlock and anemones, buttercups and bluebells, clover, daisies, and forget-me-nots. A village church tower rose in front of them beyond the plough-lands, and the busy high road lay far away at a safe distance from the riders. Farther on, the meadows with their nut-hedges came close up to the plantations on the left, shutting out the view and enabling them to ride in complete seclusion generally side by side with the countess behind as the path was narrow. They talked or rode in silence, while Percival jumped over the stream and back again, or plunged into it for a bath or a hurried drink. They came back the same way as they went. When, however, the quicksilver fell, owing to the lowness of the atmospheric pressure, when rain followed, and Klaus Heinrich nevertheless felt another peep at Imma Spoelmann to be a necessity, he presented himself in his dog-cart at Delphinenort at tea-time, and they stayed indoors. Mr. Spoelmann joined them at tea not more than two or three times. His malady got worse about this time, and on several days he was obliged to stay in bed with hot poultices. When he did come, he used to say, "'Hello, young prince!' with his thin, white-cuffed hand, dip a rusk in his tea, throw in a cross word here and there into the conversation, and end by offering his guest his gold cigarette-case, whereupon he left the garden-room with Dr. Watercluse, who had sat silent and smiling at the table. In fine weather, too, they sometimes preferred not to go outside the park, but to play lawn-tennis on the trim lawn below the terrace. On one occasion they went for a rapid drive in Mr. Spoelmann's motor, far out beyond the pheasantry. End of section 17